lot of figures out there that um, in what I call the counter narrative space, you know, this in, uh, alternative media. And um, as I had to navigate my way through it, it became very critical for all of us to find this information that we're all searching for here in, in the post-COVID era. And there was a lot of figures that were not super trustworthy. They had some good information, but it was really hard to make heads or tails of them. There's been a process I've gone through just trying to figure out who, who can I really trust? Who can I actually listen to and like get behind and who is maybe uh, who's maybe the more stupid Peters of the crowd, right? Who needs to be deprioritized in uh, this place in my world. And so all this is to say, it's hard to get your word out. I've noticed it's hard for me to retweet you. Uh, the, the reach is limited, much as much as mine is often, to be honest. But uh, it was important because I have a lot of people asking questions about the things that you are an expert in that we're going to talk about this evening. I think you have the right message for my, my audience that's very interested in these topics, uh, but not super, you know, they haven't gotten down the rabbit hole per se, but I think they're ready. And especially after COVID, I think it's super critical because I think uh, we, have a, we have a lot to uncover in this topic. We're going to talk this evening about HIV lab origin and, and more probably with an expert who I'm really delighted and super pleased to introduce on the air this evening. Uh, welcome to the program, Nick. Well, thank you very much for having me. And thanks uh, everybody who's joining us for this big spooky basket of maybe it's our early Halloween treats, you know, mm -hmm. of black pills um, that we're going to, we're going to share tonight. And uh, we've really put a lot of thought into sort of the scope and the, the depth of what we want to cover and sort of circle the whole HIV story long back before most people know that it was a thing before it entered public consciousness. So um, I'm very, very happy to be here with you and thank you for having me. Absolutely. Of course, a motorcycle goes by. I have a joke where a motorcycle goes by at the start of every single podcast. I, it must be a coincidence. I'm pool house for some of, I guess, Nick's uh, audience. Just so you know, Nick, my audience are remote viewers. So even though they're not here with us, you know, they are with us basically in spirit and time and space, basically. So it's great to have you here. What should people know about you, Nick? I think, uh, yeah, let, let's start there. Who is Nick or, or Saint Nick or, or this cat that I see on my screen right now? Um, the reason that I'm an avatar instead of a person with a face uh, harkens back to the original whistleblowers, the folks with uh, scientific degrees, and a couple of them had medical practices who dug up this information in the 1980s. And within that group, a couple of deaths occurred. Uh, and then a couple of years later, a third, uh, the publicist, uh, disappeared. And in respect uh, and, you know, in love of my own friends and loved ones and everything that I've got to live for, I made the decision when I uh, started into this as a public dialogue in about 2017 uh, to maintain anonymity. Uh, and at some point, uh, I might get doxxed. And, and that's, you know, really, it, it will, won't be of any major consequence. I'm not some figure from a major pharmaceutical company or, you know, a, a high-ranking professor from a university. Um, if you want to know a little bit more about me, again, I'll, I'll share some of the mileposts uh, without giving you the names, you know, of what, you know, where, where and, and when exactly so that I can help maintain that ambiguity. Um, uh, I, I love sci-fi. I love, you know, the space cat is just simple fun. The, the logo is sort of a collaborative art project that happened between a meme artist and myself, and we passed it back and forth until it was ready. Um, but um, I, I have always enjoyed 
really the in as I went through the AIDS era, I really enjoyed science fiction and science fantasy. Uh, and I as I look back and said, why did I spend so much time with that? Uh, one is that it was a comfort uh, when you've got PTSD and you don't really have anything to calm the burning of your mind and your heart about you know what you what you are carrying with you and i know people uh very close to me who have been to war uh and people who have been through horrible difficult childhood trauma like sustained trauma uh and a few friends that made it through the hiv era uh, but in that in that space you uh you find things hopefully that are productive or beneficial for you to sort of let the heat cool down uh, as you sort of, uh, you know, your feet come down to earth again. And you're like, all right, I think I think I can try to carry on here. For me, um, a saving grace was science fiction, uh, in part because I was so terrified of interacting with other gay men, um, because not because I had irrational fears about transmission, but because I had distress anxiety. I had questions for them that weren't polite or appropriate. Um, you know, I just, I, it was, it became a real problematic thing for me. So I became an introvert um, and science fiction was uh, one of my, you know, one of my saving graces. But uh, about 2017, I got on social media and started doing uh, conversations like this with small groups. And the tradition that I mentioned began in Los Angeles by Dr. Uh, Robert Strecker. And Dr. Strecker was from the Midwest, and he is one of uh, two original whistleblowers from the Strecker Group. And the Strecker Group was a small, we'll say, think tank in Southern California. And it was two brothers and some other colleagues, some lettered scientists, uh, some reporters and, and publicists uh, who were really after the possible, the, the potential lab origin of HIV. So he started this tradition and used to sit down doctors and investigators and hand them a big stack of, of Xeroxed materials and talk their ear off for three hours. And one of those young initiates was a dermatologist who became my colleague and mentor, much to my benefit and appreciation. And that was Dr. Alan Cantwell. And Alan uh, met uh, Dr. Strecker at his friend Virginia Livingston's house on a Wednesday night, and they stayed up very late. And much like I did originally when I found Dr. Cantwell's book, uh, Alan rejected this stuff. He said, "This is crazy. I, you know, this can't be real." Uh, and and you know, we can talk about what are those psychological mechanisms. You know, what are our mores and and folkways, things like that. Our our tolerances, things that we can reasonably accept as a possible behavior from other people. And then we're going to be speaking most of the night about things that are terrifying, that are beyond the range of most of our behaviors and values. But unfortunately, as features of biodefense and some very dark science, these things do go on. So that's 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 a little bit about who I am, why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, I did care for some loved ones in my, uh, we'll say, the in the era just before the cocktail, the the you know the defensive pill combination became available, um, I didn't really suffer the the sort of meteor impacts of the nurses and caregivers and loved ones who took care of so many friends in the early '80s, um, and I do feel guilty about being HIV negative. Uh, 
Um, it feels strange to say that. It feels good to say that with another gay man. Um, but that's part of why I do this too, is that I, I didn't want to just do all of this research and validation and keep it to myself. It was too important. And then as we'll probably stitch together later on, uh, you know, the recent events and as well as I think a number of other public health events that we've seen in the meantime uh, between COVID and AIDS, uh, they bear attention and there are common themes in the agencies and the individuals and the institutions involved. Uh, and there's just too much paperwork, too many patents and too much money uh, involved in all of this to cover it up. It's pretty massive. And that's that's part of what this has become um, sort of a, a cog in is a group of people, larger people like you've mentioned, larger than us, who are going to really take on the ivory tower and uh, the ability of their national health institutions to continue on making plans with the World Health Organization for uh, relinquishing sovereignty in the midst of a declared pandemic, things like that, that are trying to slowly creep into our international laws. So that's where we sit from, you know, the scale of a personal experience to you know, how I got into doing these things and why I care about it. And more importantly, what what may, it may be of help um, in the larger fight about making sure that our nations maintain our sovereignty and that we don't relinquish that to the who. Hmm. Nick, thank you so much for sharing all, all of your experiences. That was really incredible. And I want to say, I, I say this a lot to my partner and to friends. I invite you to forgive yourself, first and foremost. It feels good. I do it all the time. It's awesome. So please, please do that because I'm, I'm super grateful to have you here and for you uh, for sharing those experiences. I don't get the opportunity, you know, as often to talk to a slightly older generation. I, I guess I'm an old millennial, ancient millennial. So we'll say like early 40s. Uh, I guess we'll place you at Gen X, maybe. We'll say, uh, Nick, there. there's obviously a, a disconnect, right? There's a, there's been a loss of so many of the, the people who came before us. Um, although I guess I'll say I'm technically not gay. I'm just a homosexual. It's, it's a whole thing. But this is the home of kind of like uh, misfit gays, in a sense, who are kind of open-minded to some of the things that you are, uh, you've expressed that you're interested in. You're in a perfect home. I'm super happy to have you here. And actually, as a science fiction fan you'll be happy to know i'm actually a time traveler it's also a whole other thing we won't get into that this evening but uh thank you for yeah also mentioning like the the, the strecker group uh, these are all things i think my uh friends and and, and listeners are not going to be as familiar with just yet they're going to be kind of knowing about things like peter duesberg they're definitely questioning i think hiv and, and what's going on there after um having lived through covid how covid is a huge transformative event for, for many people and open their eyes to to a lot of things they're ready i think to take this trip especially you know after i think this summer with rfkg you're kind of um, opened a lot of people's eyes or kind of just directed the energy, I guess, towards this topic. If we're going to go back in the in the flux capacitor or whatever, uh, DeLorean, to this other era. I don't know where you'd like to to take us first, Nick. Um, actually, one more thing I want to add. Actually, I, when you started saying that, I like, I swear to you, I heard like the chain by Fleetwood Mac play and it felt like very, like I got goosebumps. It was a very like, <laughs> a cool moment. And so like, I feel honored and it's like, uh, it's important, right? And so I think all the information you shared tonight will be making available to, you know, all the, the listeners. I'll have a very extensive show notes on my page as well so that we can keep all this information, you know, in as many places as possible. So yeah, Nick, where, where should we go?
have a little white pill before we uh, tear open a big five gallon drum of Costco black pills. Cause friends we're you know, this is going to be rough. This is, we're going to be cracking open uh, a, a can of beans. You remember those gag beans where you open it up. It's, t- it sounds like it's mixed nuts and you open it up and a big snake springs out. And mm-hmm. um, unfortunately that's, that's the kind of stuff that we're going to be covering in the history um it can't get you anymore it's already here it's manifested and churned and transformed over time and it's worked very well to become things that are innocuous and unrecognizable to you as a threat it does this through propaganda and through language things like green and sustainable which are unfortunately confounded with their actual native meanings. But we're going to be really, you know, digging back to let's let's just go ahead and fire up. Uh, yeah, I'll put a banana peel and uh, uh, oh, let's put a Bud Light can in Mr. Fusion tonight. Just, you know, just to but we're going to be going back to the mid 50s and I will open up and begin sharing the traditional timeline deck. This is a PDF. And along the way through this PDF, there are uh, some uh, links, just a few, I think maybe six to eight links along the course that lead directly to some full text items. Those are worthwhile Easter eggs. They're not illegal. None of the materials were acquired through, uh, you know, illegal uh, or, or unlawful methods. Everything came out of the public domain, whether that be Harvard Library of Medicine or the Library of Congress or any number of universities that have fed into the whistleblower research. I started by pooling their materials. And I do not have the full text of every single thing that all the one of the published whistleblowers has has uh, brought in. But what that did was was really dry out the fire and light it up for me. And I began continuing on the topics, the names, the universities, and then specifically the scientific activities within those time periods that fortify what did they, you know, what did they just say? What are they proposing? That's how I went. And instead of just finding the very tops of these buildings buried in the earth, I went back with a little pick and I dug out the entire city carefully around every whistleblower that I could find. Some of them left really decent, uh, what are called special collections uh, that are registered at universities. One of those collections is something that I'm very happy that I went down to physically digitize uh, because it gave me the opportunity to meet my colleague, to actually meet Dr. Cantwell face-to-face. So let me shut my mouth and we're going to start into the conventional timeline. I'm going to move pretty quickly uh, because just because of, you know, both of our familiarity with much of this material, I want to give maximum time to come back and do Q&A. So let me start sharing here. If I can click and talk at the same time, here we go. Are you seeing the timeline, sir? It is loading. Here we go. We're, we're live. Okay. So this this PDF deck is available. I'll make sure that the link is out there. It's on my Rumble channel. It's, it's, it's all over the place, mm-hmm. and it's just a PDF. Um, at the end of it, probably maybe two-thirds of this document are all of the references from the main original bibliography that I used in college, in my college work when I uh, did some of this material. Um, since then, 
the online collections, the Z- I keep saying the Zotero, you'll hear me say Zotero, it's a platform. And when you research, it's a free uh, .org platform and you can post as many uh, paper studies, citations as you want from any different type of source. So it's a really, really good pu- uh, public collaboration platform because as soon as you put your stuff in your collection using the desktop tool, uh, it goes up to the website and everybody can see it. You don't have to pay anything as long as you're not putting your actual papers, the actual full text PDFs up with the collection. You can post thousands and thousands of of items uh, for free. And that's something that I've been very, very, I encourage people to do, whether you're a scientist or a researcher, because it gives you the ability to just send someone a link um, and it's automatic. You know, it's just, I could go on and on about it. It's a great tool. It's a a project that's run by scientists around the world called Zotero. But let's jump in. So what in the world does the 1950s have to do with HIV? Uh, What is Africa and the U.S. gay male hepatitis population, the team, you know, the the groups of men that are called cohorts who volunteered to test Heptavax B in the late 70s to early 80s? What do they have to do with monkeys in the 1950s? Well, let's jump in. We have the date, 1959, and the place, Leopoldville, former capital of the Belgian Congo today known as Kinshasa. The first evidence of AIDS emerged from Central Africa more than 20 years before the rise of the HIV AIDS epidemic in America. So if you went back and said, well, HIV is related to SIV, to the monkey AIDS virus, uh, where do humans have contact with monkeys? Well, the average person has no contact with monkeys. There are only two ways that you can have contact with monkeys that I can figure. One is you have people who eat monkeys. The other way is is that we still, or that we used vaccines that were made from monkeys that we injected into people. There was so much use from, I would say, probably the 20s or 30s forward of primates, a number of different subspecies, upper and lower primates. We don't need to name them all, but there was a big wave and an introduction of using them for not just testing, but for the creation of human biologics. There are different names for biologics. One of those names is vaccines. One of them is biologicals. One of them is genetic therapies. So tonight we're just going to say biologics. It's the parent term for whatever the generation of an injectable, non-natural material is that is concocted in a lab. But it's because of that era that was finally given a name, medical primatology, that we have two big shoes that we're going to drop right now. One of them we've already dropped, HIV. That's because pathogens that were not intended got into these biologics and we became aware of them, we being, you know, human beings, the public health entities, medical practitioners, learned about them through changes and increases in the presentation of certain diseases in public health. We noticed signals and trends. That's how our general awareness of the oops 
maybe there's something going on using monkeys. That's when we, we finally sat up and began noticing these things. There are a number of intersecting stories from the era of medical primatology, one of them being the polio vaccine race. It plays a big part in why we raced headlong into this dangerous dark science. I told you there were two shoes. The other shoe is cancer. And for those of you that don't know, we're not going to do a whole presentation tonight on viral oncology. That means cancers that are related to or caused directly by an infectious agent. Um, cancer is a transmissible agent, and it is a huge part of the AIDS and today the COVID complication story. Um, there are a number of infectious agents of a great number of scales from the little teeny tiny RNA viruses up to parasites that can wiggle around or the oozy blobby ones that can uh, trigger or disable our ability to stop the processes of cancer in our body. We have these great tools, these defenses that keep cancer in check when they're working, when they're in homeostasis. And we, we find that because of the introduction of a great number of the pathogens from primates, human cancer blossomed. And unfortunately, because they didn't want to deal with admitting the mistake and dealing with the financial and you will say the litigation and liability fallout, which would have probably destroyed Rockefeller medicine at that time. Uh, they decided to sweep it under the rug. So let's get going on our, on our journey. We've just talked about primates in medicine. Uh, the primate of main concern tonight with HIV is the chimpanzee pentroglodyte. And we will be discussing a program called the Special Virus Cancer Program. It became a doghouse, kind of a, a longhouse for a number of biowarfare projects. And up on the storefront, you know, out on Main Street, they dressed it up and said, this is a war on cancer. While back in the back room, uh, most of the projects didn't fight cancer at all. Right now, we're looking at one of two key scientists who began his long career in hepatitis investigations. He worked at the Willowbrook School, and Willowbrook became a scandal that we'll see again in about 1972. But the key point to recall with this gentleman, Dr. Krugman, and his colleague, Dr. Prince, are that they did some very unethical experiments on the children. Now, for those of you on the East Coast or of a certain age, you might know Willowbrook and the scandal. There are documentaries. Uh, there are documentaries that feature Willowbrook residents talking about what it was like to be uh, basically interred at this institution. But a number of the children died as a result of their investigations. Um, the real extent, uh, say, the lack or the, the malformed bioethics that these investigators practiced uh, can't really be verified by a layperson like myself. Um, you know, we, we don't really have all of the data of everything that they did. One of the points that I thought might be a good, solid follow-up to see if and when, uh, meaning how far back, children at Willowbrook that died in experiments and would have been buried in unmarked or group graves on the property at Staten Island. Uh, the problem is, is that it was sold. The whole facility was sold and a great amount of the uh, campus was rebuilt and paved over. Uh, 
So using uh, conventional, you know, cadaver ground penetrating radar, there's very simple tools that you can rent to find uh, evidence of things like that, of, of unmarked graves. Um, and that would have a- allowed for biopsy of marrow or a tooth or something to see if there were SIV or HIV sequences in any of the children that had that had died there. That doesn't look like, you know, it's it's really a dead end. There where no one's going to be allowed to come back with jackhammers and to to break up the campus and look for that kind of evidence. But that's something that I think empirical about Willowbrook um, at this point, sadly, is is kind of out of reach now. They both come back in to the hepatitis B story and intersect with the gay men study in the U.S. later on. Uh, We talked about multiple primate viruses entering public health. This is just one of them. You and I, if we look in the news today, can look for, in fact, we don't have to look in the news, just turn on any channel, any streaming service or or public television channel, and you'll see ads trying to scare seniors into taking RSV vaccines. It's a new product. They're trying to vaccinate people against a primate virus, a chimpanzee virus, which was originally named chimpanzee coriza agent, that was originally introduced to people through pharmacology. So that's, you know, a snake eating its own tail. So that's that's just one of the examples of the fallout from this era that we call medical primatology. Um, there are many ways that pneumonia can occur. There are viral, bacterial, there, you know, there are issues with terrain. There are a number of ways pneumonia can become a problem. This viral pneumonia is not pneumocystis carnii, the pneumonia that was so devastating, uh, particularly in the early years of the 80s for HIV AIDS patients. Um, But right now, we've seen a whole lot of people come forward and a lot of deaths during the COVID era because of RSV. And that seems to be because of the similar mechanism that the COVID spike does in many of our cells. It agitates and reactivates latent infections, potentially things like RSV. Come on, computer, keep going. There we go. Now, I said that there was going to be a couple of important Easter egg links. This link down here is uh, to a public archive version of this documentary. And you can find it's mirrored all over the world. There are people who have posted this. And I like this one because it's the it's the longest cut that I've been able to find and where it includes that extra important juicy detail are in scientists, uh, the scientist interviews. They interview some scientists at the Royal Society. They interview a really important pathologist at the NIH, who I think is one of the good guys. His name was Cecil Fox. We lost Cecil um, a few years ago. And they interview some of the original scientists who were on site there in the Congo during the big contentious oral polio vaccine campaign. So um, I, I really, really advise that you look at two different pieces of the AIDS story. One of them is Ed Hooper's book. He's made it open source now. You can get it for free. Just go to AIDS Origin. I think it's AIDSOrigin.com. You can find Ed Hooper and Origin and, and, and uh, The River is his publication. It's huge. Now, I have to delimit what Ed will engage on. I really consider him to be a fantastic, amazing investigator. Um, I'd say an honorary doctorate, PhD, 
many times over uh, in, in different disciplines from having gone back to Africa, from having lived there, from all of the anthropology work and then the biology work that he did with Bill Hamilton. That was his scientific, you know, his superhero friend. He was, you know, very, very closely allied with Bill. And on their second trip back to Africa, Bill got malaria and died. They were uh, collecting chimpanzee scat so that they could do SIV sequences. Um, and that, you know, it didn't, it didn't take all of the thunder from Ed Hooper, uh, but that was a real blow. And that happened just before a major event that is well-documented in the film. I don't want to say anything else about that because you may have some questions about it. So let's just keep going. But this is the river and the origins of AIDS documentary. So another primate, dangerous primate pathogen introduced into public health very broadly. And unfortunately, as I have confirmed in the literature again recently, I couldn't believe my eyes the first time when I saw it. And then when I went back, uh, sure enough, they made a number of vaccine products on the offending material. This is from using primate materials for the production of a biologic. And SV40 is the 40th offensive or concerning, they call it a non-target pathogen, you know, a passenger that was uninvited, uh, that caused or presented in disease. You know, whether they could say it was causal or correlative was always the long pole. But regardless, they, they cataloged these things and began the characterization process because of changes in patient health. That's why they knew there was a problem. And this one they found in a great number of products starting in the mid-50s. Polio vaccine, one of modern medicine's greatest successes, made its inventor, Jonas Salk, a hero. 64 million Americans do say nothing of all the other people in the world that will profit from your discovery. I am very, very happy to end that. But polio vaccine had one distinctive feature. It was the first to be derived from monkey organs. Mass commercialization began and gave rise to the development of an enormous market for monkeys, used both as test animals and as raw material from which to create the polio vaccine. Entire shipments of macaque arrived in America from India and the Philippines. To make primary cultures of monkey kidneys, you needed monkey kidneys. You needed flasks or bottles. Uh, you needed culture medium. And this was usually supplemented with fetal calf serum or with horse serum. Remember, I told you that polio vaccine race caused a lot of pushing and shoving and people tripping over themselves. Well, one of those errors was Dr. Kaprowski and the Wistar Institute, Philadelphia, going over to Africa and running his big trial and exposing all of those people to raw SIV because they did use chimpanzees in the OPV trial.
But then they continued to use primate materials like the SV40 contaminated cell lines for years and years. Uh, I can't explain that besides maybe there's a there's a big spooky black pill we're going to get to later. Um, maybe that explains it. You know, that's that's really my best conclusion at this point. This discussion about SV40 contamination was in the press. It got out. Uh, there were a couple of fantastic investigators, Dr. Eddie and Dr. Stewart, who really did everything that we would hope a, a public health defender would do. And they raised the alarm and had other scientists around the world uh, become aware of the risk and reproduce their work. And the problem was is that when they took regular samples of commercial vaccines off the shelf and injected them into animals like guinea pigs or gerbils or rats, in most cases, the animals would develop tumors, sometimes as big again as the animal. Huge. I've, I have seen that data and it's grotesque. So these, these public health safety officers were frantic. You know, they, they knew not only, you know, that the solid and the disease mechanics were very well defined and confirmed independently, but that we were continuing to produce public vaccines that you would go to your doctor and that doctor would come in in a white coat with those clean little clear glass vials with the metallic caps and everything just looks so uh, pristine. And unfortunately, way back at the beginning of the process of that product being created, before it got filtered and and you know and processed a little bit and made to look the way that it did, uh, it was built on something that was contaminated with cancer-causing viruses. And here at this meeting in 1960, they swept it under the rug. This is the uh, uh, the American quote unquote air quotes discoverer of the virus that causes AIDS. And they stood him up on the podium, and I think it was late 83 or early 84. And uh, they announced it and said, oh, our, uh, you know, our esteemed Dr. Gallo of the National Cancer Institute has discovered the, you know, the viral agent that causes AIDS. And then a huge fight ensued behind the scenes. I encourage people to get the incredible work of, do uh, not doctor, of uh, uh, investigative journalist John Crutzen. C-R-E-W-D-S-O-N, Crudson. Um, he wrote science fictions. And you don't even have to wait to get the physical book or the download. On his website, Science Fictions, you can find all of the FOIA communication back and forth about how this scientist, who we're going to talk a little bit more about his, his point in the timeline here, just a second. But in, in the whole purse fight over the HIV patent, it became clear that he not once but twice acquired sample cells from the French patient, from Montagnier's patient at the Pasteur Institute. And Montagnier was sharp enough to register a tiny subsample of each of those cell samples that he provided so that it was truly, you know, it was, it was a patented uh, genetic sample and they froze that subsample and that's what helped him win the patent fight. But that went on for years behind the scenes in the eighties as this guy tried to pretend that he discovered AIDS. Well, guess what friends, what we're going to talk about right now, mm, he may very well have discovered that SIV 
was quite a fatal cancer-causing primate pathogen. And as we might see, if we continue to follow his papers over the years, up until the point that AIDS emerged in public health, and we, and we were all told, oh, 1981 is when AIDS started. No, it started in a, in a trial in New York City in the early 70s, I think 72 or 73. And half of that cohort were, quote unquote, not reachable after two years, which would mean they'd passed away. They also mentioned in the papers as they followed up on that study um, that those hepatitis vaccine experimental patients, uh, that a number of them were quite unhelpful and, and wouldn't take calls and wouldn't help out because they were sick. Now, most of that cohort just died very acutely. And I don't know if they made the potion too strong or why there were two different releases, but there, there is clear and clinical evidence that there were immune suppression deaths, deaths that occurred in a gay cohort in New York in a hepatitis B vaccine trial. And that's written about by Dr. Wolf Smunas. Um, but I will say this in Dr. Gallo's defense here before we assassinate his character any further. He was not alone. This was not some axe he had to grind against the gays and the blacks. That is a much larger and more frightening enterprise that we'll get to. But Dr. Gallo was close to this work. And by close to it, this was the title of the project that began in 62. This was a biowarfare project before that special virus cancer program even was formally, you know, had a name. The title of his program was Investigations of Viral Carcinogenesis in Primates. Most of us know what two of these words mean, investigation in primates. What is viral carcinogenesis? That means cancer caused by a viral infectious agent. So they were looking for infectious viruses, retroviruses, RNA viruses, or DNA viruses that were related to or directly caused cancer. They were observing this already in people, in some people that have been exposed to primate uh, materials through biologics or experiments like the, uh, the Africans that began developing cancer following the oral polio vaccines. Those, those well, they, I shouldn't say vaccines, the oral polio campaign. It was oral polio because they sprayed it in the mouth. And the papers we see that come over with biopsies from those patients uh, that came to the UK and Belgium and France and certainly to the Defense Department and the NIH uh, were about young, very, very young and unusual African cancer patients who had suddenly developed oral, you know, soft palate cancers and jawbone sarcomas and nasopharyngeal cancers. But we don't even need to stop and stare at the, you know, the atrocity of what occurred with the OPV. It came over with the animals because another big part of this program wasn't just to look for cancer causing viruses from primates. That's what SIV is. It's a it's called a leukemogenic virus. Um, they also were in charge of setting up and growing the regional primate centers. And that's where they saw a lot of transference of disease. 
something that one species was carrying that didn't do anything to them, like SIV CPZ doesn't seem to do anything to chimpanzees. But when they put it in all of the patients that got the African OPV treatment, a, a number of them, a statistically a significant number of them developed cancers. And that's why it became one of these candidate viruses. They began mixing them, combining them, mutating uh, very early on. The first mutagenic candidate, it seems, was SV40. They were really interested in zapping it with different types of radiation, uh, trying to burn it chemically, seeing if they could fuse it. They learned that it quite, quite uh accidentally on its own recombined with adenovirus. And there was an adenovirus SV40 hybrid listed in the journals as early as 1958. It might've even been earlier, um, but they began doing horse races and combining different cancer causing viruses together in an animal uh, project to see which combinations would make animals get sick and die fastest. Um, again, we just touched on the, the biopsies and the signals about unusual cancers that were coming from all of these villages that had received the OPV treatments before. Some scientists believe that tiny particles called viruses, possibly hidden deep inside the blood cells, are involved in the onset of the disease. But can scientists prove that viruses are a cause of cancer? And with that knowledge, develop a cure. Thousands of scientists all over the world have been conducting research on the role of viruses in cancer. Two of those scientists have been asked if it is now possible to prove that viruses cause cancer. Cancer is a disease of the cells, the building blocks of which all living things are made. The rose, the robin, the rhinoceros. The microscope reveals different kinds of cells that make up the root of a plant or the muscle of a man or the skin of an animal. But cells are more than building blocks. They're the very fabric of life. Each cell is a biological machine designed to ensure its own survival and the survival of the organism of which it is a part. The Special Virus Cancer Program was the second name given to this project or this, this group of projects. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, uh, biowarfare or defense nomenclature, special generally means that something is classified to a certain degree. It'll generally start as a special X project or special program. And then maybe at some other point, it will get renamed and they'll try to turn it into something public. That happened with this program. It became Nixon's War on Cancer. And it justified him pouring a whole bunch more money into it, just as they were really getting HIV candidates off the ground. Uh, oh, but I said I said there were some important uh, Easter eggs. This is probably the most important document in the slideshow. This is the final progress report from the SVCP. This is written not from scientist to scientist, so it's not chuck full of biochemistry and laboratory notations. You don't have to solve atomic valences or learn, you know, all of the Greek letters and all of that stuff. It's written 
to leadership, to health and defense leadership of our nation. So the language is quite approachable. The reason that this is such an important artifact is that this was handed to me when I met Dr. Cantwell in 2019. He died in the beginning of 2021. He was 90 and his kidneys failed. Um, so, you know, there doesn't look to be anything untoward about Alan's passing, but I had the opportunity to receive um, a few important artifacts from him. And one of them was his original copy of this year. So it's got his hand markups in here, all of the, the you know, the gold highlighting and the notes in uh, the, the uh, journal are going to be Alan's material. Uh, he doesn't do a whole lot of, of written notes, but he does a whole lot of handwriting so or a whole lot of highlighting. So you can really get drawn into where, you know, where was there something that caught his attention? Why should you care what Dr. Cantwell thinks? Well, Dr. Cantwell was a frontline dermatologist at UCLA when people began getting referred to him in 1979, young, healthy men with purple splotches on their neck and their mouth. And he helped uh, young men try to cope and deal with Kaposi's sarcoma, along with the other problems that they were facing in their health. He is also a cancer investigator. So he didn't just uh, you know, observe and report dermatologic conditions. He went into the pathology, the staining, the microscopies, uh, as, as well as uh, bacterial investigations. He published other books completely unrelated to AIDS on his investigations and his colleagues um, on cancer bacteria. There's a pleomorphic form of bacteria that he was uh, very focused on. But that's, that's why this material in here, why that markup is significant. He's an OG whistleblower, and he's incredibly qualified to have these opinions and to present this. But in your own time at your own pace and at no cost to you, you can download this whole document. It's about 300 pages um, and you can read very carefully. Um, this is kind of the senior uh, report, the, the state of the art as they, they didn't shut down these illegal functions. At this point, it wasn't called gain of function. It was still called recombinant DNA technology, uh, but they, they integrated it right into the NIH. So we talked about primate facilities around the US and that that project that Gallo was connected to uh, began and established uh, many of these regional primate centers that were generally connected to a major university. Uh, LEMSIP was one in upstate New York that's, that many people on the East Coast are aware of. What we see is that in, in some cases where one of those infectious endemic pathogens from one species got into another part of the population, into another species, uh, they would actually have to cull major portions of the population. They were getting quite sophisticated by 66, 67, with doing two things, suppressing the immune system and inducing cancer. Does that sound familiar? Does that at all sound like the disease mechanisms in HIV? This is, uh, this is another sweet little, you know, being from nature that got pulled into all of this horror. This is the sooty mangabe. This is where HIV-2 came from. And HIV-2 only presented over on the east coast uh, or the west coast of Africa. So in my opinion, uh, it was really, again, 
much like the papers that show them using all sorts of different lanes, uh, think horse lanes, like a horse race, of different combinations of viruses, uh, seeing which ones would be the most efficient at killing the animal. This, to me, looked like a field trial comparison of HIV-1 in uh, a couple of different populations and HIV-2 in another specific population. Um, that would give them some differentiation and they could check disease efficacy. Um, is it communicable? Does it maintain, uh, you know, does it, does it mutate out of its disease virulent state? Things like that. Um, but those would be some of the reasons why there would be two different versions presented. This is the only slide that I'll read. This gives us a very clear insight, not only, as I've mentioned, to the state of the fine tuning of the disease mechanisms that they were chasing after. They, they were seeing, you know, in patients that had gotten infected and unfortunately come down with leukemia or cancer. And then they were refining very carefully and studying. Uh, this is where both Congress and many, many major entities in science and national health administration, like the NIAID and the NIH and the National Cancer Institute, that's Bob Gallo's uh, organization, as well as the Defense Department, the CIA, Naval Intelligence, everybody was in the biowarfare game. But this is how we know that they very clearly understood what they already had in the lab, what they had already published some papers about, and what they wanted a little more money to finish up. This is, this is the quote. Quote, within the next five to 10 years, it would probably be possible to make a new infective microorganism, which could differ in certain important aspects from any known disease-causing organisms. Most important of these is that it might be refractory to the immunological and therapeutic processes upon which we depend to maintain our relative freedom from infectious disease. End quote. Now, in the midst of all of this, they already had some candidate viruses. They had already seen it kill some patients. They had already done some tests on uh, children, pregnant mothers, prisoners. Uh, you know, they're, 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 this, this is not, they weren't just discovering how to be diabolical scientists. This was all about the Cold War and the justifications that they were passing back and forth. What we're not seeing here in this very damning quotation is this this positioning of themselves that we have to do this because the Russians can do it. So we have to do it. And, and this is called the sword and shield argument. Uh, and there are other historians and investigators who really can speak to that at a greater depth, do justice to it. But it's been used again and again as a justification to do something that's dangerous. And in this case, let the genie out of the bottle. So Nixon and Kissinger went about uh, trying to spin things and get the word biological out of the press's mouth. They, they wanted us to stop saying CBW. That was a buzz. You know, that was all the buzz in the late 60s as soldiers were coming home from Vietnam. And the press, you know, Jane Fonda was getting over to Vietnam and the press was beginning to see the real world impacts of Monsanto and the things that we were spraying in the war theater, uh, and that it wasn't just defoliants, that there were some other very bizarre and unfortunate things that were being tested in Vietnam and Cambodia. So the public was becoming aware of this, and Nixon and Kissinger did you know, the common PR thing, 
Nixon went on TV and said, we're not going to do offensive research anymore, which was a lie. Uh, and he and, and Kissinger got together. They, they circled their wagons and basically redefined what chemical research meant. So basically, they said that everything in these memos here, everything that was a quote unquote biological project, because they use chemistry in the lab, they're just going to reclassify it now as chemist as chemical. That's how they wanted to literally just with semantics redefine these illegal activities that were continuing. I say that unequivocally because I read projects that ran multiple years that that you could see they never stopped to try to fight the new cancer-causing germs they were making. All they did was make more and more and more, and their funding kept going. And as these big political change, you know, these posturing and, and fa, 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 you know, this, these proclamations to the world about how we're still the center of democracy and, and bioethics, that was just, you know, we all, we've all seen uh, assurances and lies like that in our lifetime. We don't, you know, you don't need me to prove that to you. I told you that suppressing the immune system was a part of this ongoing work. And one of the things that appears to have probably been <clears throat> their, their main indicator was they kept making anti-lymphocytic serum from primates when they would do a transfusion or a transplant experiment between a primate and a person. So if I was doing a chimpanzee human experiment, I would take blood from the chimpanzee, make this ALS, which targets and suppresses the immune system of the human host. Does that sound familiar? Uh, and then that would suppress the rejection of whatever I was trying to transplant in that experiment. Yes, there were direct chimpanzee transfusion experiments. Uh, dentistry, skin grafts, organs, cell tissue types, all kinds of ways to see if the primate model could be in some way a substitute or a supplement for human health products. But all the while that they were using that public justification, they were gathering and refining these quite dangerous uh, cancer-causing leukemogenic viruses. We talked about the use of Chimpanzees, if you didn't know, they also would use a living chimpanzee in, in many cases to make high concentrations of hepatitis B, measles, or whatever virus that they were making a human biologic for. It's a much easier system. You put a little bit of the concentrated virus in the animal, let the animal develop the disease state to a high titer concentration, and then cull the animal. And using the blood and particular tissues from the animal, you can make your human biologic. At least that's what was in the patents. That's what Merck was doing and Pfizer and Ladero and all of the pharma partners in this big coagulation of universities, pharmacology, public health, defense and intelligence agencies that were all together working on this stuff, pretending that it was a war on cancer. We told you that the Willowbrook scandal broke in 72. That's when someone gave a key to Geraldo Rivera. A young Geraldo Rivera got in through a side door and broke the story. And his film crew showed the world 
um, a really important scandal about the expectations of public health, human decency, all kinds of ethics, you know, bioethics issues uh, were, were exposed in this scandal. Uh, and the two scientists ran. Robert Kennedy went to Willowbrook in 1965, almost 10 years ago. He found a snake pit and he demanded change, but there would be no change. We submit what he found as our Exhibit A, our first piece of evidence in the case against the state of New York. I visited the state institution for the mentally retarded, and I think particularly at Willowbrook that we have a situation that borders on uh, a snake pit and that the children live in filth, uh, that uh, many of our fellow citizens are suffering tremendously because of lack of attention, lack of, lack of imagination, lack of uh, adequate manpower. In 1972, we went to Willowbrook for the first time. These are the conditions we found. This is our Exhibit B. Dr. Krugman and Dr. Prince, pew, like a rat out of an aqueduct. And they both landed on their feet. Dr. Prince landed off the coast of Africa in a little chimpanzee hepatitis B camp where they were doing experiments using chimps for hep B vaccines. Um, a very interesting part of the history there. This is another important uh, Easter egg. This is the full technical flow of isolating and characterizing a great number of cancer and tumor and leukemia causing viruses, then working them through the mutagenic process, and then repeating that with all of the Brady Bunch progeny, the little hybrids that result after you cross them. Uh, another point that probably put our community in the crosshair was the fact that we were uh, delisted as mentally ill. The APA and then the APA, that's the Psychiatric and so uh, Psychological Associations, uh, in, in close sequence, announced in the early 70s that we were not mentally ill. Um, this did not bode well in many of the conservative channels, particularly as we started having pride parades and getting on the summertime news and having our own newspapers and having a voice. Um, this was not the direction that a lot of people wanted the world to go in. Gallo is continuing to now isolate primate leukemogenic viruses from people. And these are much more interesting because they've already made that difficult leap across the species barrier. From this point in the early 70s, we see him take a number of isolates, a couple of them in particular, uh, and turn them into whole varieties, like think of a family tree, of a whole new set of cancer and leukemia causing viruses from primates that never existed before in nature because they couldn't have done what he did to them in the mutagenic process. Those are papers published in 1976 and 77, just before the emergence of HIV in the gay population. Uh, also in the literature, our community is listed with the language subnormal. That is one of several uh, terms that describe us and basically offer a justification to use us in experiments, including, as in this quote, um, uh, to use them if we find a leukemogenic virus, it would be appropriate to study these high-risk persons for exposure to that agent. This is 1973. And as I said, it appears the first gay test was uh, 72 or 73. And then they did a two-year surveillance on everybody after their three shots. And they reported 
in the, the last citation that I can find about a gay hepatitis uh, follow-up was they, they said, well, 50% of the cohort could not be located. Um, I think that that's one of the, you know, really the, the first footprint in the U.S. And it seems to coincide uh, temporally with the release in measles and smallpox vaccines with 20 different countries in Central Africa. That brings us to the who's role in all of this. This was an ongoing lockstep set of institutions, national and international agencies and universities they spread it out like a honeycomb, kind of like the Manhattan Project, where one team was working on the lymphocytology mappings over here in France. And another team is looking at how Visna does fusogenics. Visna is part of the DNA of HIV-1. It's from a sheep biowarfare germ that they started fiddling around with in, oh, I don't know, the 40s. It, it was a long, long darling of the biodefense team. And that's part of the genetic makeup of AIDS. It's how it got in there is because they were doing fusogenics. They found out that both of these RNA viruses had a tendency to recombine. And they found that they could recombine Visna and Medi virus with a number of the primate, they call them type C RNA viruses. The CIA was there. They were there formally, officially, and then as the heat came on, they said, let's get out of here. And they destroyed a whole lot of their chemical biological materials at their headquarters. The reason we know how much they destroyed, although we don't know all of the fine detail of what they, they, uh, they shredded, was because all the years that they were doing those operations, they were filing expense reports. They were still playing in the legitimate federal finance apparatus. So there's thousands and thousands of pages about MK Naomi activities and expenses that give little bits of data, nothing, you know, nothing that you could base a book on, but they certainly show the scope and the number of projects that were, you know, specifically focused on uh, particular activities. They show certain, certain projects that appear to have been under that USAP umbrella. That's called an unacknowledged special access program, which means it didn't officially happen uh, and then some of them that were centered at major universities and at places like Fort Detrick and the Samrud Lab
I told you that there would be a big, nasty black pill waiting for us towards the end of the, of the timeline. We're almost done with this horrible timeline, friends. Um, and that's depopulation. It didn't spawn from this worm, from this, this germ of a human being, Henry Kissinger. Uh, he was an instrument of a large apparatus that has been unsatisfied with the success of humanity over the last few decades as we continue to grow and grow. They have objectives about our stuff. And I don't mean our stuff we bought off of Amazon. I mean our national quotas of wheat and corn and soy and tons of special minerals and gold and silver, et cetera, et cetera. They cataloged the whole world. And they decided which countries were going to be lower. They called them lower developed countries, LDCs, and would probably experience political unrest and plagues and violent uprisings. If you take their their writings, which begin, I don't know, I'd say the they started coming out of the closet in a big way in the late 60s with the Club of Rome publications. But you trace the things that they say and predict over time as they pop their head up and put up a publication here or there. Now they're the agenda people, agenda 2021, 2030, 2050. You'll see things that they predicted would probably happen have somehow come true. And we can retroactively go back in many of these cases and unpack how they were called my hops, make it happen on purpose, or lie hops, let it happen on purpose. Um, I mean, a common a common thing that they talk about are that there will be fires because of because of changes in the you know the global environment. There will be a lot of fires, and that people will have to probably move to city centers. And what do we have now? Fifteen minute cities and fires that just spontaneously pop up and seem to burn out in very strange ways, um, sort of gerrymandered patterns within neighborhoods and regions. We don't have time to get into all of that. But if you want to go down the rabbit hole, go back and look at the National Security, uh, Secret Security Memo 200. This, this was going to essentially become U.S. foreign and domestic policy, because it affects both you know, the country and our international uh, approach. But we all know what happened with Nixon in the middle of all of this. So they, they did some edits, they tweaked it a little bit, and the next year Ford signed sort of a watered down version of that into uh, policy. That in 1975 was the first time that we officially signed on for depopulation. But we certainly aren't gonna put that on the news. Your congressmen and representatives aren't going to be discussing that. Your mayors and governors aren't going to talk about that. Oh, goodness, that's a conspiracy theory. But yet you can go and find hundreds and hundreds of pages about their strategic and tactical execution of this over time. It's multi-vectored. I'm telling you that huge, horrible black pill story because HIV is just one compartment of what they're intending and apparently succeeding in some measures to do. And that's reducing our lifespan and reducing the, the birth rate. Those are the two key metrics that they talk about again and again, accelerated mortality, reduction in birth rates. And if you look now very carefully at what the OBGYNs, there, there are some that are finally coming out of the closet about the trend they've seen in the last two and a half years. Um, we see that there is a collapse in the global population rate. 
Uh, and clearly, there's uh, a huge increase in what's called all-cause mortality. This is that other doctor that landed off the coast of Liberia who worked with chimpanzees. Someone that worked closely with him wrote a letter to Dr. Cantwell. I can't expose who it is uh, because he, he made Dr. Cantwell promise not to reveal him. But he was there at the facility in Africa, and he said that Dr. Prince was commonly visited by someone that everybody was pretty sure was CIA, and that that would also involve Dr. Prince getting uh, disappeared sometimes for three to five days at a time. Well, across the continent, about uh, probably an hour and a half to two hours by plane, was a major, I think is still a major CIA U.S. Army lab on the Congo River. And that's a whole nother story. Uh, but it may be likely that Dr. Prince was doing activities that were involved in the current release of HIV in those U.S. aid WHO vaccine trials that we looked at. Um, I said there was a patent that, that uh, allowed all of these producers to build their human biologic in a living animal. Here it is. It's still up on the net. It's expired now. But at the time, this was the approved formula. You could make hepatitis B vaccine from a human patient or from a living chimpanzee. Uh, there was an attempt to fight against this Pandora's box. I don't believe and I don't see indicated in the literature that there was some huge collective horrible hatred and bigotry about all gays and lesbians and all black people and everybody that we don't want on the earth. That piece of it that we just talked about it with, with the globalists is its own thing. But there were plenty of folks that could see the danger that was brewing. And they had a couple of large uh, fights about it. They rented a facility in Asilomar on the California coast. And in 73 and 75, they had two big notable conferences. And they fought back and forth about these dangers. This is Maurice Hilleman, the guy that swept SV-40 under the rug in 1960. And he ends up being in charge of the Merck hepatitis B unit. This is the old USAMRID building. They've got a new multi-billion dollar facility, about six times this size. And this is where a lot of our biodefense activities occur on Fort Detrick. They needed a loophole. So in 1969, and then again in 77, as it was widened, think of a, a big tunnel just going right through bioethics. And what this tunnel permitted people to do for a number of reasons that they called exceptions was to perform chemical and biological tests on the public without informing those people. When I looked, the closest I could find in the law was that they had to tell the governor of the state. And it didn't, it didn't predicate what kind of an instrument that was whether that was a phone call, a carrier pigeon, a smoke signal, uh, you know, a back of the napkin note over drinks, I don't know. Uh, but I doubt that we'll ever as a public be allowed to find all of the times that universities, private companies, and unfortunately, our defense intelligence complex have utilized this loophole. And it says that peaceful purposes related to medical, therapeutic, pharmaceutical, agricultural, GMO, industrial or research activity, any peaceful purpose. So as long as you're saying, I'm doing this for defensive research purposes, you could do anything you wanted to, to a degree. 
there were some tests that got out and there have been some cases and there were some activities in the 1970s that dragged the defense and intelligence communities in, in front of Congress. Well, in 77, I said they widened the loophole. They removed that annual requirement. The defense and intelligence communities no longer have to account to Congress as to when or where they utilized this loophole. That began in 1977. And in 1978, in November, after careful screening, 1,083 healthy, athletic, sexually active gay volunteers, that's, that's, those were literally the requirements. They had to be very, very sexually active. They wanted people who would be good looking and would go out and be at risk for hepatitis. That was the justifications for those terms. But they rolled up their sleeves and took three shots of Heptavax B. And in the spring of 79, as I have interviewed people who lived in Manhattan at the time, uh, those men began disappearing. And then their boyfriends and people that had been dating them began getting sick and disappearing and dropping out of the social scene. And very quickly, we know what happened. But it was much earlier than 1981. incredible first of all thank you very much for sharing uh for sharing that and taking us on that journey i've seen i think a variation of this uh, presentation perhaps before but i appreciate that you saved your best version of it for the backlash audience because that was amazing i took copious notes it's uh it, it was a whole scene up in here <laughs> well, first of all yeah thank you for contextualizing that because there is a lot going on and i think that a lot of people when they approach you know hiv aids they think of it as a discrete historical event, which I mean, it, it is in a sense, or it is significant and in its own kind of like lane in history, but it is also connected to this um, broader tapestry, this darker story uh, that I think is important. And I think it takes a bit to get like a sense of the scope of it and really connect those dots and then to let it kind of sink in. But for me, finding this kind of work, this kind of thought was good, actually, because around you know, 2021, I started to have like a, a very bad feeling about what was going on with uh, COVID-19 and, and the vaccines. And it felt like there was a clear censorship. And uh, much of what you just demonstrated here is the experience I started to have even then, which was that so much evidence was just sitting out there, like in scientific papers, like uh, open, just sitting there saying like, oh, this stuff isn't going to be that good. There was a lot of things that contradicted what was being said on the news already at the time, you know, that you could find. And that was not being discussed. And I was really surprised by that. So I thank you for kind of cultivating this archive of, of materials and kind of demonstrating just how uh, 
open of a secret so much of this is despite the kind of spin and, and versions of the stories that we get told in the news and this one story is like the beginning of AIDS right so I think um I know I was in California I guess in the mid 90s I think we had to watch and the band played on in high school probably as a as a part of an assignment or, or part of a class I think um I read the book I think in college as well I think that's probably the primary way I think a lot of people know the AIDS story and it um I think it's an accurate story, I guess is what I would say. It doesn't tell the whole story. It's maybe a fair way of characterizing it. One of the things that first I remember hearing from you is this stories about the, uh, the you interviewed these um, these survivors and, and, and gay men from Manhattan from this period in the late 70s. Uh, is it true? Did I hear you once say that the like CDC was recruiting uh, volunteers like inside discotheques, essentially, at the club, trying to get these these uh, these hot gay men, essentially, that they were trying to recruit, for lack of a better term, for this this uh, research into this Hep B vaccine. Um, I, I uh, want to tell a story tonight. I think I've I think I've only told it once in a private Zoom. Uh, and this person I have confirmed has recently passed. This was a long term HIV positive survivor from the era. Um, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you what he shared with me and wanted me to tell the world. He he never wanted to be doxxed because he was worried about getting assassinated. Uh, he had worked in defense and intelligence roles, was, you know, basically in the closet um, to a degree with work uh, up until a point. But he had a very, very specific and difficult encounter from the early 80s about a hepatitis vaccine shot. And we'll talk about that in a moment. To your question, yes, the eyewitnesses that I have encountered have come from after getting blocked by, you know, pretty much every gay person that I approach on Twitter trying to say, you know, and I'm sorry, I, I, I'm using a, I'm, I'm not going to be up with uh, the, the lingo and the pronouns and the preferred language. I'm just going to say gay. And that just means, but I don't know if it's Scott Thompson gay or how gay it is, but it's good. So we're so, homosexuals around here. Yes. It's kind of our way of going, but for lack of a better term, sure. please go ahead, go ahead. Sure, 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 sure. Um, so we we were in uh, the era of uh, oh god, uh, train of thought. So uh, oh god, uh, I just thought of the kids in the hall and Scott Thompson. Got completely <laughs> so distracted. The, yeah, there was a, a witness that you talked to. Yeah. Witness. Oh, the eyewitness. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So using using uh, basically, it appears to me that they were attempting to use up the hot. I will say the hot batch or lot of Heptavax B. They were trying to make sure that all of it got administered mm -hmm. to the target population. Um, I, I did discuss with a New York witness. Let's see, I have one New York witness, um, a Los Angeles witness, and a San Francisco witness. And then this, this fourth, this, this dark horse that we'll call Paul. We'll just call him Paul. And that's the story that I'll finish up with about him and his hep shot. But these three witnesses uh, were all either enrolled in the formal and it was run by NIAID, but I don't see Tony Fauci's name on anything back from the era. But there's so much about their study data that I don't have access to. I don't have the national study materials. It's locked down. Scientists can get it. We can't. 
which so that tells you something. But coming back to did they give shots? You know, where where did they give shots? There were uh, the NAID footprint began with New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles. And most of us understand those were the communities where, you know, the first cases were reported and presented and caught fire in the community. Uh, they continued with Chicago and Dallas and Miami, Atlanta, uh, St. Louis, uh, Denver. I think that's about it. There may have been, oh, there may have been, uh, might have been Phoenix. I, no, I think they did Phoenix because that was, I think, the the national team the niaid team which was run by jim in part by jim coran and jim was part of that remember he was that newcomer who came into the cdc and was part of the cdc team trying to find out the mystery of aids he was on uh the hepatitis study team that was centered out of arizona i through the course of these interviews and each of these individuals are now in their, you know, uh, I think probably late sixties or seventies. And they were all quite detailed. They remembered and gave uh, sociologic data about behavior in the community, sexual behaviors and, and, and trends, things that were going on. Cause I asked them about Deuceberg, about some of the things that he claimed. Um, I just said, you know, I wasn't out at the bar at that point in time. You were what, you know, does, mm -hmm. does the things that he were claiming do, does this stand up? Does this stand up? So I checked them for a whole lot of anthropologic, um, you know, foot on the ground testimony and the N equals doesn't equal thousands of people. I don't have thousands of inputs, but they were there. So I take an eyewitness very, very seriously. One of them described laughing and saying, yeah, they had them at the bathhouse. They had a card table in the back of the bathhouse. And it was this nice heterosexual, you know, couple of lab workers, you know, basically public health outreach workers who'd gotten the short straw and had to go on a Friday and a Saturday night and offer free hepatitis B shots. I think this witness said they saw that happening in Denver was the city. So that's that part of it. <laughs> as far as the disco, as far as doing it in a nightclub, um, I don't recall uh, any of my eyewitnesses citing that, um, a couple of them did confirm bathhouses. They said, yeah, e easily. They remember them being in, in the main bathhouses. And and it looks like from the duration of how long they went on, it was maybe until about 82. And it appears that that was probably they exhausted the last of those big hot batches of Heptavax. And those, if you went in to get a hepatitis shot as a kid or as a heterosexual adult in 1983, you didn't get that weird batch they made for the men's gay study. You got some other formulation. Mm -hmm. And it's why, you know, we literally had a control at the same time. It was part, you know, it was an available product, but not this special hepatitis vaccine. That was an experimental investigation run by the NIAID. Um, so let's get to Paul's story. So Paul found me through the internets and we had some conversations on the, on the, you know, over, over zoom. And we had uh, many email exchanges. And as I've already described, he was quite concerned about getting outed because he still apparently was working um, right up until the end of life and working in areas of defense or intelligence that it would be too sensitive for him to tell me who he really was, which was fine. He had great detail about the era 
Um, he was very familiar with most of the whistleblower books and, and uh, presentations. People uh, like Dr. Strecker and his video, his original video called the Strecker Memorandum, which is still to this day a worthwhile thing to right. sit through, mm -hmm. even though he got his genetics wrong. They just didn't know they hadn't locked it on to uh, the chimpanzee, S, you know, the SIV yet. Uh, their, their video came out two or three years before that announcement from Los Alamos. Mm -hmm. But he sure had the tiger by the tail because he had the right program. And he was calling out the recombinant DNA work. Mm -hmm. That's why Strecker's brother got whacked. And why Illinois State Representative Greg Huff got whacked a month later in 1988, because they were over the target. It almost shut them up, but they kept doing radio presentations. And um, this is what Paul told me is that he had tracked all of this. He'd heard all of this stuff happening over the years. Um, but he, he wanted me to know this, this really difficult experience where he felt that he was exposed and seroconverted. So here's Paul's story. Paul got a letter in the mail addressed through his main, his primary care physician's office saying that his name was on a list of gay men that needed to come in for a hepatitis shot. Now, Paul had acquired hepatitis, uh, we'll say, in the wild, in 1979. He was a sexually active adult, and he had uh, been exposed to it, and he had a really hard time with it. He he got it through sexual contact, and the, the shaking it off, you know, he described in some detail that it was almost a year-long project to get his body and his gut and his health re rebalanced, but he, he got rid of it. He cleared it. Now, we all know that hepatitis B can be a latent infection and that it's involved in a great number, a high percentage of liver cancers. So it's worth it to protect yourself from hepatitis B. And I don't mean by taking a vaccine. Uh, but Paul knew exactly that he had natural immunity. That's why his story is really important for some of the arguments and the, the, the play acting that just occurred in the last three years about natural immunity and us finding out now just who's dying and who's having real serious health complications. Unfortunately, it's the vaccinated. But Paul, Paul gets this letter, and I think he said 1980, late 80 or 81. And he goes to his doctor and his doctor's like, oh, yeah, well, the local STD clinic had a big database and uh, your name was on it. And uh, you just need to go and get a shot. And he said, why do I need a hepatitis shot? I just cleared hepatitis. You know all about it. You coached me through it. And he said, oh, just go in there and have the meeting with them, please. You know, it's 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 on formal letterhead and they look and it's on Defense Department letterhead. The Defense Department has gone through the local, quote unquote, anonymous STD clinic, which is not friends, by the way. Don't give if you think you're going in for anonymous testing, don't give anything but a unique non-identifying email. That's all you should ever use. Never give a phone number, never give any identifying data if you're intending to truly stay anonymous because they send it to the major hospitals, which tie right into the CDC and into the Fed. And the CDC, if you don't know, is a compartment of a parent organization that's staffed by about 50% Defense Department personnel. 
our health apparatus is about half managed by the defense department. So if you don't know much about defense department corruption and issues um, with this dogs of war thing that's been going on since Eisenhower tried to warn us to please get a hold on this thing and we never did, this is why this is all kind of a big tangled problem. So here's Paul in the doctor's office and in comes this little physician's assistant who I've got the name of, I'm not going to dox, but I know exactly who this person is. And this guy has a little clipboard and a big attitude and says, yes, well, we got your data and you were uh, hepatitis positive uh, from your local STD clinic. That's, that's how Paul found, you know, he, he, he got sick and he went in and got a confirmatory test. Um, and this little brat says, you've got to take this shot. And Paul described this back and forth. The guy came in and out twice, flashed the DOD logo at the top of his clipboard and tapped it like he was a cop or something. He was a physician's assistant. And unfortunately, Paul finally took the shot. And he says about two weeks later, he had a horrible mononucleosis type experience. And he had swollen glands and night sweats. And uh, that's when his HIV began. So those are those are some anecdotal and a very specific story about um, not only this casting a net for gay men in the community who would then sexually transmit the bioweapon to other people, which is why they they pretended to be busy and did nothing so that they could study the efficacy of the deployment. Uh, but also they kept going after individuals they kept making lists as was evidenced in Paul's case. That is a crazy fucking story. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I want to actually reiterate just a few things that this subject, Paul, that this man that uh, spoke to you received a letter from the government, specifically the DOD saying that he was on a list of gay men. <laughs> That uh, had like uh, had hepatitis B, it, which seems to be it would be in conflict with their own their own policies uh, at the time around you know uh, homosexual employees. So it's really surprising to be honest. It, it should disturb the fuck out of people because this is uh, the, what year was this specifically, uh, Nick? Was it seventy? Uh, oh, his the year that this happened to him that basically his breach of anonymity occurred through that STD clinic right, 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 yeah. uh, was probably I think late nineteen eighty. Okay, okay. I, so, I had yeah. it. I had it happen to me. You had it happen to you. That is wild. Yeah, in the 2000s, in another major metro, in a clinic that brags about its anonymity, that takes, you know, makes apparent, you know, as you fill out a form, it's a short form. They don't try to scrape your data. But at some point, I used a telephone number with them. It might have been through their caller ID system, through their scheduling stuff. Uh, and that data got magnetized to my anonymous chart which went to a local state federal STD lab, which is tied into the CDC. And before I know it, someone from the hospital who I didn't go and visit calls me up and says, Nick, we need to see you because you have positive tests. You have a positive test for gonorrhea in the urethra and in the anus. And how I know that this was all a big hot mess is because I had didn't take an anal swab. And I didn't have any symptoms or concerns, and I wasn't uh, having any tests for an uh, anal sex. Uh, you know, there was there was no symptomology in the anus. I didn't I didn't do a swab. And I said to her, "Look, 
um, excuse me, but I went in for an anonymous test in the throat about a week ago. She says, well, no, we have your information with a, uh, a urethral and a rectal swab, and they're both positive for gonorrhea. And I said, you know, that's interesting that you're calling me because I went in for a test, but I didn't get those tests. I know. Um, and so how in the world is this happening? She said, well, we aggregate. She explained to me. She told me that, you know, those little clinics that offer to the community, hey, come and get your free anonymous tests. You, you cannot contact them by phone. You cannot do it or it will magnetize to your data. The AI instantly, you know, blobs it together. And you, you know, the CDC has an updated profile on who you are, including your new quote unquote anonymous email. So that's my story about that. That, that outrages me. Okay, first of all, the, Data privacy invasion aside, anyone who's dealt with a hospital and had to have insurance be uh, paying for something that they were supposed to pay for and it's not working and you have to do this runaround and they can't even coordinate between those two parties, but somehow are able to get your information from like, you know, this clinic and wander it through these channels to connect it back to your ID and add it to a database uh, is scary. I'm sorry yeah. that happened to you. And I think that it shows whatever this operation is that, you know, recruited these men in the seventies the for these experimental programs that resulted in, uh, you know, the early cases of AIDS. Mm -hmm. What were they doing then? Who knows? It seems like a similar kind of operation. Yeah, well, remember, everybody in America remembers Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Everybody, it's in their collective conscious. And you know the child catcher, the one that comes out to catch, come on, children, lollipops, <laughs> cookies, you know, L free today. And his caravan is all lit up. It's painted with bright colors and there's balloons. Looks like a circus. And the kids come out and Jeremy and Jemima climb in and he pulls the cord and it's this horrible black cage. You know, that's that's very much what occurs, unfortunately, um, in some of these stories, in some of these cases. And, uh, you know, I this isn't a big boo hoo. I had my PTSD. I don't I don't think it's fair for me to say I still suffer from PTSD because I'm able to talk about it. And if I get overwhelmed, I'm able to cry about it and I process. But I'm not the walking wounded like I was for a long time. Um, and it's that that really kept me from uh, accepting and confronting my own uh, weakness about the the horrible truth of it you know, seeing and facing the truth of it. And you say, I'm outraged that they would share my information. Fuh, fuh, fuh. That's the least of your concerns, my friend. It, because I, I, and I do not maintain or suggest that all of the NIH or everybody that's got a career in these agencies or entities that we're naming are all part of some big bad. Quite the contrary. It's a very difficult, complex situation because there are many good people in science and in these institutions. And there are people who would argue against it in a well-meaning way because they don't want to accept it. So they just they don't let it in. They don't even begin. They, they won't open the papers. You say, look, I've got a paper that shows you these different steps, the literal steps as they move it over the fence from the chimpanzee to human beings. We can show you how and why it arrived as HIV-1. Um, and they won't even entertain clinical evidence about it because of that confirmation bias. And that's been something that has been really, really ingrained in a lot of people. It's much easier to just say, oh, conspiracy theorist, than 
to read something that's difficult, that contradicts what we want uh, to see a situation like, you know, and those are some of the factors that, uh, that people are still struggling with today. Yeah. yeah I, and I totally, well, first of all, I, I have to get angry about something like once per episode. I, I'm a shock doc, Nick. I have to get worked up. Like, it's okay. Get angry. <laughs> I think uh, that what you're kind of talking about too, is this cognitive dissonance. I feel like uh, we all run up against in, in various topics. I, I get kind of worked up about the gender identity kind of question or gender ideology thing. You see it there where there's a, a lot of data. I think that people don't want to even consider COVID-19, of course, this instance. And I, I feel like it's a little bit of trauma based mind control almost it's like this there's this unconscious force almost that's uh that's driving people in some cases where it's like they are unable to to confront the those very basic facts and and again it's not a vast conspiracy per se in the sense that's all this unified uh organized thing that everybody's a part of it doesn't really require that but i think to just get to people to consider that there could be something amiss that there could be something wrong that's a struggle and i think that shouldn't be so hard with so much evidence for people to, to just ask some questions you know just some clarifying questions and people don't want those you know i think that the anger has to be at this point tempered and focused or you'll pretty much stress yourself out, which would be an additional complication and burden on your health. So what I'm about to do right now is to bring you back to uh, those some, some of those stepping stones. There's only about five papers. And we're going to look really quickly at just the title and describe very basically what is happening in the science here. And this is for folks that really say, well, where's the paper? You know, people have confronted me again and again and said, show me the paper that said that they made AIDS and that they're giving it to the blacks and the gays. There, there are that like the technical flow chart. There are some one page items that can show you almost the whole horror of it from end to end. But uh, in this case, we need to see how over time, they focused on the primate diseases. They began working on primate human blood toxicity. They call that lymphocytology or how white cells from one animal affect in a toxic way the white cells of the other. In this case, chimpanzee to human lymphocytologies to combining things together like immunosuppression with viral infection. And then finally, the finishing touches of um, fusing together the primate SIV with Visna. They liked Visna because of its wasting. It was another one of these slow uh, RNA viruses that would recombine. So it was a willing partner in the experiment. It, it had the potential to shake hands with SIV and become a mutagenic partner. But they were also very fascinated with its slow, progressive pneumonia and wasting. And it also has uh, synergistic uh, oncology attributes. It, it can be, uh, you know, a, a root cause in cancer. So here comes just a small number of papers. And this will be sort of some of the, you know, the, the cherries on the Sunday. Uh, this is the beginning of really looking at infectious diseases in the primates and they describe in this paper the onboarding of Merck, Sharp, and Dome. For those of you that don't know, Merck as a major uh, pharma 
entity. You might know it as a pharma producer or a brand of medicines, but it was also the original biodefense partner with the, the DOD. And they never got off that train. The money was too good. They loved it and off they went. So uh, that's, that's, you know, that's an important aspect of Merck getting engaged here specifically to look at primate diseases. So we look, we go a little bit forward now in time. This is about the mid 60s and they're already getting this sophisticated. What they've got here are a number of uh, test results and the test result data is down here uh, showing whether there was a strong or a weak positive result for knocking out white blood cells in people. And these are the names of different chimpanzees in this study, Claudia, Anita, Debbie, Abe, Brigitte, or Brigitte. Uh, and this is called, this is what I was saying before, was a chimp to human lymphocytology experiment. And they're finding quite effectively that chimpanzees that carry some of the chemical markers that they will later give proper names to, like reverse transcriptase, RNA-dependent DNA uh, polymerases, things like that, things in the mechanics of retroviruses. Uh, they're seeing those early chemical indicators in some of the animals and how those map across to killing human white cells. That's the fundamental uh, disease mechanism in HIV. Now, AIDS is when everything else in the body has, a, has an opportunity to assert itself. You don't have enough white cells and there's a cascade in your health. Um, and thankfully, we're in an era where that isn't happening very often for most people. But uh, back in the day, this was precisely the, what they were targeting. Here we are moving a little bit further in time. This is 1968. And they're getting very precise about testing that ALS material. This is another name. This anti-human lymphocyte sera is another name for that ALS that I was talking about. They would mix up from an animal and use it to suppress the immune system of the target uh, patient or animal. And here they are looking again, even closer in finer detail at what chimpanzee lymphocytes or white cells, which would include their retroviruses, have a toxic effect on human white cells, the basic fundamental function of HIV. Here we are moving a little further forward. We know those lymphocytology mappings, that's all worked out. Now we're kind of going back to those horse races of combining a lymphocytology component like the ALS from the chimpanzee and other viruses like Epstein-Barr or pneumonia viruses, things like that. And then finally, we'll leave off here where we have an entire chapter on the mechanisms of inducing fusions between viruses. This is where we can go in and look at Visna, you can look up Visna fusion in Myzotero and find a big section on Visna. And in the mid to late 70s, they're getting quite sophisticated at having Visna recombine almost on its own when they mix it with different types of retroviruses. And of course, genetically, when we pull up HIV-1 today, we see that it's about 80 to 85% SIV from the CPZ, from the chimpanzee, and about 10 to 15% lentivirus from the Visna. 
so that it traces directly back to the Visna Fusion papers. We see every major step. And then we've already talked about the vaccination experiments. Those were the testing vectors that they used to see how effective and how far it would go. It's sort of gruesome. I, I, I've spent some time uh, trying to understand, for example, uh, how, how vaccines are made, right? Uh, and you described some of the processes uh, this evening and some of the, so it's called Visna? Is that what it's called? This the serum? The sheep, yeah, that sheep. Well, that was, a, no, it was another, it was another retrovirus. They had a whole big catalog and they combined the SIV together with Visna, at least according to the genetics and to the papers we see in the 70s. It feels like they're just constantly taking syringes and like sucking things out of different animals, like rotting parts or whatever, and then like shooting them into other things and just like seeing what happens. It seems so gruesome. Some of these like experiments or processes that they have uh, cooked up for themselves. I don't know. It's, it's grotesque for me. I don't mean to like hate on science, but I know it takes sometimes, uh, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, you, have to, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs or whatever. But like, I don't know, Nick, is, am I wrong to be like, this is a little bit gross? Well, the arguments that were brought at the Asilomar conferences were um, immortalized. They're not lost to time. You can go back and listen for yourself to the voices that tried to argue against this, that felt, uh, I think, just like you and I do, that um, just because you can do a thing, why would you do a thing when the potential for misuse, abuse, or catastrophic outcomes like new ways to kill masses of people could be a derivative of the work. And the people that were making money and having fun, by the way, Dr. Peter Duesberg, Berkeley, mm -hmm. 1974, yes, he was paid in the Special Virus Cancer Program, which is why number one reason I don't trust him he has a distinct conflict of interest, not only because he was in one of the projects, but because he was making his own recombinant leukemogenic virus from birds. His were from avian leukemia and sarcoma viruses. So those are some of the things that factor into how I see this. I think the Duesberg question is sometimes I'll, I'll say the, the DQ. It, it is kind of interesting that he's so prominent when people do start to look at um, alternative theories. And I don't know, in some ways, I kind of like that he hates kind of on like excessive gay lifestyle. He, and he doesn't hate it. He's, I think, actually fairly res respectful, but is critical maybe of some things like uh, amyl nitrates, poppers is a famous, I think, Duesberg kind of uh, belief that, that that's related. It's sort of this excessive uh, party or hedonistic lifestyle is solely to contribute and not not a virus that might have come from the lab that he used to work at. I think people should think about that a little bit carefully because it is a little bit uh, of an interesting uh, position that he finds himself in. Uh, yeah, and my interpretation, my opinion, is that as I watched a number of these scientists cry out, and particularly ones that were close to the work, die suddenly. One of them was Wolf Smunis. Dr. Smunas was in charge of the New York hep Heptavax uh, department. 
So he was essentially the the head of the study. And I just recently read uh, some material from Clad Stevens. Clad was part of the study as well. And Clad said that Wolf was coming every month to the men's Heptavax surveillance meeting. So the scientists at the center of that study coming back repeatedly following the initial injections. And he was crying out for an investigation because of changes in the cohort because of health problems. And then he died rapidly of a quote unquote brief illness. Uh, he died of a lung cancer. And, you know, as I watch the differences there, I see what appeared to be people that are complicit to the plan and are willing to toe the line and maintain a institutional narrative. And there are those that sometimes pay the ultimate price for calling it out or dissenting. And then there are some who dissent that just get marginalized, like Dr. Horowitz, who wrote the best book on all of this based on the evidence that he included inside of it, not because he was persuasive or because he was an orator or anything. He's a professional lettered scientist. He was a practicing dentist, an MPH, and he worked for years you know, to teach himself this virology and biowarfare history. He found the best material and he got marginalized. So there are different sort of different paths and outcomes for people in, in so much as how they have aligned to the narrative. We just saw that happen in real time in the last three years. People that were trying to warn the public about health problems related to COVID or to the vaccines, and then they would get canceled. And then within a few months, the real mechanisms of disease that they were calling out, that they were trying to warn us against, are being published about in the journals. You know, we got to see it happen in a very rapid cycle. It came, it came around quick enough for people to, to say, whoa, wait a second. You know, and I think that's the most important takeaway from this is, is how, how will people put this kind of awareness to use in the current place? Mm-hmm. Uh, G.D. Mikevitz, another person who's, a, I guess, whistleblower, maybe a polarizing figure, I guess we could say, I like her. My goal, Nick, I'm going to tell you, I want to talk to Dr. Judy Mikevitz because I think an episode of me talking to Dr. Mikevitz would make people lose their minds. It would be the most difficult thing to sit through possibly ever, possibly tear a hole in the space-time continuum. And I think that would be a good thing. So I was looking, I'm looking to seek her out, but she's another one of these people who's, uh, you know, along these lines of like uh, Dr. Horowitz uh, and has put together, I don't know, a very similar story anyway, I guess you could say that. They're all pointing towards the same direction of a kind of a long multi-decades of pattern of, of corruption and, and, and scientific crimes. It's it's the truth. And she certainly has um, an eyewitness seat to this in a way that I never had. Um, I don't I don't know. Actually, you know, I've I've had brief uh, encounters with her on Twitter spaces and things like that. Um, and I've never tried to pull her into this big rabbit hole in public. You know, I've just, I've offered, I've said, I've got a whole lot of data. You're a fantastic, you know, you're, I think you're a truther and, and I, I appreciate what you are doing for health freedom and for disclosure of this stuff. Uh, would you like to compare notes? And she's been positive, but those are literally, that's it. That's been the depth of it. 
And then I can never get on her calendar and never get replies. Um, and I've had people say, oh, I know Dr. Mikevitz. I know Dr. Mikevitz. And the next thing I see, she's booked for the next eight weeks, you know, at all the every weekend, every five minutes she's on something. So I'm not a podcaster and I, I would very much enjoy hearing her talk about her experience, um, you know, right at the sort of ground zero in the early 80s and hearing her opine on some of the artifacts that I would bring forward, whether or not she was familiar with them, just see, say, hey, this is how it appears to fit into the mechanics and how do you see it? That settles it. We will make it happen. Like, I, I I don't know how exactly yet, but I did. I literally said to be beginning, beginning of twenty twenty three. We will. I wanted to talk to Doctor Mike a bit, so, and you will be there. Is what I'm I'm saying. We, or maybe you should be there first. Honestly, you have much better credentials for this. But it's gonna be a dream team. We're gonna make this happen. It has a very optim optimistic or hopeful kind of uh, message as well. Mm -hmm. She has a lot of uh, similarly dark things to share and perspectives, but her message is not one of like, we should give up or there's, uh, there's this cabal that we can never defeat. It's inspiring and it's uh, it helped me. Her great speech, I think it was like the defeat the mandate rally uh, was during a time when I was dealing with some, uh, or my, my partner and I were dealing with some mandate drama. Uh, it was very inspiring. I would leave it perhaps there in just the sense that we, uh, there is a, there is a greater hope. We're all finding different ways to unlock our own selves and our own potential and then find our own way to navigate through some of these nasty things that have uh, polluted our world but it, it is not hopeless i don't think that's ever the case right no not at all um but uh that old song from the 70s um you know stop child what's that sound everybody look mm -hmm. what's going down uh guess what kids uh, go listen to that track. Uh, we we need to be aware, and I'll and I'll tell you why I'm I'm going to leave on this point, and that's to heighten your awareness. I know it might be fatiguing to have heard all these things. Some of you will not go and click on any of the scientific data. Um, it's much easier to brush it aside. I I get that, but for those of you that will, you're going to find another folder in my collections, and I need you to look at it. It's called Pox Vector. And unfortunately, the next time that we talk on this, Nick in the pool house, um, we probably need to discuss what I have found about monkeypox. We don't have time tonight, but the point is, is that I want you to stay on your toes and I want you to, to think about, you know, what you are being administered and how it's being pressed or forced or coerced upon you. And let that be in the balance as you weigh with your own gut is this right? Is there something awry here? Um, and don't overlook, you know, people like to say anecdotes of what's occurred in public health in the last three years. They're not anecdotes. They're lives. They're people's lives. And they, are, they were changed biologically by something. So I just want everybody to be, you know, on, on their toes. And also, this is a call out, if I may, uh, that to, to find me on Twitter, my Twitter handle is at Pizza pickles per with one R. Pizza, pizza pickles per. And I'm a space cat, like you see me here. Um, but if you are in a monkeypox vaccine trial or have connection to a monkeypox support group, I would like to speak to any groups of, I mean, at this point, it's primarily gay men who were administered this product in the last couple of years. I really want to keep an eye on the community and see what's happening. 
um, I'm very concerned and I don't want to alarm anybody. I don't have any uh, horrible big bombs to drop about it besides that it appears that we can see how it happened to us. Um, and we'll leave it with that. That is super important. Um, Nick, I think gay people mostly kind of hate me to be honest, but in the audience, we're going to, I will work with, it's important to get this out there and to get you connected with some of these uh, communities. I think that we, we know the people who can maybe help with that. So I think, uh, yeah, please keep this in mind. If you do know somebody, hopefully nobody in this audience got the monkeypox vaccine. What are you guys doing? But I think you may know people for sure. We can make those dots connected. Um, Nick, this was Fantastic. I so again just appreciate you uh, for your time for all this uh work that you've done over over a lifetime and just sharing that with me tonight. Uh all the experiences of not just yourself, but these people who live through something. And I think a lot of what I started to do this podcast for was that I and other Adons had things to tell. We had a story to tell. We went, we lived through something crazy or are living through something pretty wild. I will say we were, I feel all called for this time in a way. We're, we're, we're chosen to be here. It's a, it's a solemn responsibility, but it also doesn't mean we can't uh, enjoy our lives and have fun while we're here. And so hopefully we did a little bit of both here this evening. I think uh, as Judy Mikevitz, I'll close with this. She always says, you know, like, just say no thank you, right? There, there's all these things coming. Mm-hmm. The box. There's a much more things. I think a lesson I, I wrote down at one point, I, I forget at what point, Nick, but you said something I, I wrote. It was in Paul's story. And I just wrote, do not comply because I felt so horrible for him. And, and that's in that moment where he just kind of like gave in just to do it, you know, just to. to... He knew it. He said he struggled. I mean, he made the guy leave the office a couple of times. He's like, I'm not doing There's no reason for me to take this. And uh, it was all about coercion. And the fact that he had a career inside of that apparatus and they could leverage that against him. He could have been, you know, a Canadian truck driver or a Dutch, you know, tractor driver and said, screw you. Um, And that would have been great, but they had leverage. And so, yes, that's a really good salient point. And I, I love that she echoes that. Many of us felt the same way during COVID. We felt very much the same pressure. In fact, that was exactly the leverage applied, wasn't it? For many of us, was I had a job, you know? Um, and I personally, I'll just, I'll tell you, Nick, I, my audience knows maybe your newer listeners don't, but I did take the, the J&J vaccine for that reason, because I wanted to avoid, it was a horrible mistake. We won't go down that rabbit hole, but I will say I, I relate to Paul's story in, in some ways, you know, and I think uh, when the next round comes over, you know, along, we, we all need to be a little bit stronger about what we do and do not do. Not complain and saying no thank you. It's a lot easier when there's more of us.